Good morning. I have to admit, it's a little intimidating to stand in the pulpit after you're turning your eyes to Jesus and I step up here and you see me. That's, uh, yeah, you're good. I hope so, because uh, this is a pretty flawed version of what you're turning your eyes to. But um, we're, we're continuing our, our way through this gospel season in the year. We're working through the gospel of Luke. Uh, following the story of, Ju- of Jesus as Luke tells it. Now, you've got to realize um, the gospel writers had an agenda. They, they had a thing they wanted to communicate. That's why the stories don't flow exactly the same. They put things together. They emphasized some things and downplayed other things because they were speaking to an audience, trying to tell a different angle on the story of Jesus. And so Luke has this way he tells the story. He starts with his, well, with his birth. We did all that through Advent, but... But in January, we looked at his mission, right? He went to that synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, and he read from Isaiah, talked about his mission. And then Luke begins, we talked last week about all these stories that played that out, how he lived out that mission of, of proclaiming freedom and good news and opening the eyes of the blind. And, and then there was our call to follow in that example. Well, today we're coming to chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to cover two things that happen as we read the text, and they may seem like unrelated sections, but I want to put them together because I think Luke put them together for a reason. So we'll start with Luke 6, verse 12, and we're going to read down to verse 49, starting in Luke 6, 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he went down with them, and he stood on a level place, and a large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases." Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. And looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that's how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. And if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, What credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into a pit? The student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house, but it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. Now, Lots of ground to cover here this week, not as much as last week, but I want you to see in the text that we read, it's pretty obvious, Jesus does two specific acts. Two things that he did, which at first may seem unrelated, but the reality is when you combine these two, when you lay them side by side the way Luke has done, you begin to see there's more going on here than we realize. Let's start by taking just a brief look at the two things one at a time. First, he selects a team, right? Last week we saw him choosing Peter, James, and John, the fishermen. A little later he called Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. But he begins in our text today with a night of praying, followed by, it says he called his disciples to him. Now that was a large group of people who had been following him. That wasn't just the 12. He called this large group around him. And then it says he chooses 12 whom he also designated apostles. The Greek word apostolos means one who, has, one who is sent a messenger, or an ambassador. He, in other words, he's got this large group of disciples, and he picks out 12 of them. And he gives them this special title, apostle. You're the one that are going to be my messengers. And we talked last week about the 12 that he chose, that, that, that you know, as far as fishermen and tax collectors, they were not the top echelons of society. We also see in this one, he, he picked a zealot, which is like a political radical, and he also picked Judas Iscariot, the traitor. Right? You would think, Jesus, you're not picking very well or very wisely. That's, Luke's making that point. But this became his inner circle. And when he had done this, when he had picked these 12 as kind of the inner circle, the text says he went down with them and he stood on a level place. He did some healing of the people that were there. And then it says specifically, he looks at his disciples 
and he preaches this sermon. Starting in verse 20 to verse 49, we see Luke's version of what Matthew calls, records as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is Matthew 5 to 7, it's, it's longer. Uh, and there have been huge discussions over whether this is the same, same moment or whether Jesus preached two sermons. Theologians have filled books with arguments about this. Uh, sermon on the Mount and Sermon on the Plain, they call it. It's two separate sermons. Most of the conflict comes out of the differences in phrasing. Like Matthew will say, blessed are the poor in spirit, and Luke says, blessed are the poor, right? And, and Matthew has all the blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you, but none of the woe to you, woe to you, woe to you that Luke has. But, but, but you've got to realize, as I said before, the gospel writers are taking what they're experiencing, what they're seeing, their interactions with Jesus, and they're shaping it into a theology. They're trying to communicate something in the way they're telling the story. These are not dictated sermons. I, I think it was the same sermon. And Matthew's emphasizing certain things, and Luke's emphasizing certain things. And neither one of them are given the sermon in its, in its totality. They're just teaching these things that Jesus has passed on to them and, and trying to communicate them to people that are listening. So Jesus does these two things. He chooses 12 disciples, and then he teaches or preaches a sermon, these two specific acts. And here's the point I want to make. When you put these two together, when you put the two together... Something bigger happens. Something bigger happens. In grade seven, I had a science teacher. His name was John Crenshaw. And I, I looked for a picture of him because he was your quintessential, how old was I in grade seven? 19, mid-70s? He was your quintessential um, young 70s teacher. He had kind of this haircut that went down here, and he wore these plaid shirts and bell-bottom pants, and, and he was really kind of quiet and kind of mellow, but when he started teaching, he came alive. And that was, he was probably the best science teacher I have ever had because he loved to do experiments. That was the class that we ate fried worms in. I still remember to this day. And I, I can't remember why we ate fried worms in science, but we did. But he would always set up these experiments, and there'd be things set up as you came into class, and you'd be wondering what it was. Well, one time when he was talking about chemical uh, reactions, he had something that looked a little bit like this. And he said, do you think I can blow up this balloon without putting any air into it? And of course, in grade seven, as science students, we were all smarter than he was. And we said, of course you can't blow up that balloon. But what we didn't know was he did what I've done, and he just put baking soda into this balloon. So that when, and I really hope this doesn't explode. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of courage to, to do this. But he, what he did then was he picked up the balloon and he shook the stuff into there. And look at that. Right? Because what, hey, it's working, it's not going to explode, my Bible is safe, uh, I'm not going to let it down yet. Okay, now there we'll go. But the point was, he had the baking soda, and then in the bottom of the thing was vinegar, and when the two come in together, something else happens. There's this gas that gets put off that actually blows up the balloon. And, and why am I telling you that, right? Other than doing a fun experiment in church. What I want you to see is, the choosing of the twelve is one thing. And the Sermon on the Mountain is another thing. But when you put the two together, something radically different becomes clear. And I think that's why Luke put the two together. Because what he's saying is that what Jesus is doing in these two stories is the establishment of a new Israel. The establishment of a new Israel. He chooses 12 disciples. That's a really significant number. And then he begins to communicate the ethic or if you want to use the word law 
of this new Israel. He, he takes on the, the burden of Moses and gives the people the teachings about what this new Israel, this new kingdom is like. See, the 12 symbolize a brand new start. Remember 12 in Israel, 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob. Why did he pick 12 disciples? He could have picked 10, he could have picked 14. He picked 12 specifically to, to symbolize the fact that this Messiah is forming a new Israel. Something new is happening here. He's setting up a new structure, a new 12 tribes, a new way of heading into the future. And just as in the Old Testament, Moses gave the law to the 12 tribes, then Jesus looks at his disciples and gives them the manifesto of a new kingdom, an ethic, an understanding. I love that word manifesto. I've stolen it from the Bible Project. They use it when they're describing this passage too. But I looked it up in the dictionary. A manifesto is a public declaration of policy and aims or goals. A public declaration. So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's saying, here's my new 12. And to the 12, it says to the disciples, he says, this is the way the kingdom operates. This, these are our policies. These are our goals. This is how we function. A new law, a new way of living that Jesus is sharing. And Luke's version breaks that sermon down into five sections. Five ways to be and to live as a part of this new kingdom. The first is verse 17 to 26, what I, I would call in Luke's version the Beatitudes plus. Matthew has the blessed are these things, the Beatitudes. Luke adds the woe to you if section. And what we see in this, in this kingdom manifesto is the first thing in that section is a reversal of the world's reality. Who are the blessed? Just look at it, starting in 17. The poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who are hated, excluded, insulted, and rejected. This is not what the world does. This is not the blessed. People in the world who are poor and hungry, uh, weeping, insulted, hated, rejected, excluded, don't feel blessed. The world doesn't see them as blessed. We see them in the world as cursed. There's something going on with them. And yet Jesus says, these people are blessed. And woe, woe to who? To the rich, the well-fed, to those who laugh, and to those who are well-spoken of. Woe to you. Those are the very people that the world considers blessed, right? The rich, the well-fed, those who laugh, and those who are well-spoken of. This guy's got it all. Wow, he can count his blessings. And see, what, what Jesus is doing is totally reversing the value system of the way we live today. He's saying that in this new kingdom, blessing and woe or curse is, is completely flipped. And, and he says it's not new. In verse 23, he says, the blessed are following in the line of the prophets. This is the same way your ancestors treated the prophets, those, cursed, those people the world would think were cursed. This is not new. The prophets were like that, and the world treated them that way. And then verse 26, he says, the woe to you people, that's the same way your ancestors treated the false prophets. They loved what they had to say. They lifted them up. They gave them money. They, they let them eat at the king's table. So he's saying, this... This difference is not new, but in the kingdom, we're, we're going to be clear about what is blessed and what is cursed, what is woe. The values of the world are totally reversed. And what is this new kingdom then built on? It's built on a new foundation of love, of generosity, and of mercy. Just, just listen to the words in verse 27 and 28. Pretend you've never heard this before. 
But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. Talk about a reversal of value. If, if you actually took that seriously, how would that change the way you addressed life? This value of love is foundational even for the people that hate you, that mistreat you. This core aspect that regardless of merit, regardless of what people deserve, we act in love toward them. That's the way of the kingdom, he says. And, and, and one that pushes us. This, if you really want to grapple with this, it pushes you way past where you want to go. right? Because the minute you start wrestling with there's this question, but what about? But what about this situation? But what about this situation? And Jesus is just pushing us to say, it's, the way of the kingdom is radically different. And he moves on to generosity in verse 30 and 31. Give to everyone who asks of you. Really? Do you know how many times at this church we are asked of? We don't give every time, but what does that mean? How do we give every time someone asks? How do we give to people that can never repay? In any way? How do we loan? It says, you know, he goes on to say, why do you loan to people that you know can pay you back? Even sinners do that. Loan to the people that can't pay you back. What? Jesus, how am I going to keep anything for me then? He's, he's really flipping everything. This, that, these foundations of love and generosity. It's, 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 it's radical generosity. It's beyond just being nice. It's beyond being helpful. But it's a value of the kingdom. And then he goes on to expose most of our goodness. He, he, he gives what we call the golden rule in verse 31. Do to others what you would have them do to you. And then in verse 32 and 33, he says, the basic way the, that you want to operate is you want to do good to those that you know can do good back to you. That, that's, that's Your goodness is really not goodness at all because it's just calculated goodness. I know I'm going to get paid back. I know I'm going to get love back. I know I'm going to get something back. So I can offer and Jesus takes us to this radical place that says, just do for other people what you would want them to do for you, even if they can never repay you. Love your enemies, give to them. Because why? Because God is kind. What's the phrasing there? I just, it struck me again as I read it. Down in verse 36. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. How many times has the church emphasized God's judgment of the wicked? And I, I do believe sin will be punished and judged, but Jesus himself, who is God, knows God, part of the Trinity, says God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked, and so that's the way his kingdom operates, which calls us to be kind, which is that third value. Be merciful, he says, even as your Father is merciful. These are radical values based in the character of God. It's, it's, it's a totally different way of functioning. And then he moves on to teach about, I'll, I'll just hit these way too quickly. There, you could spend time in each section, but I'm, I'm wanting to get to the big picture. A common humanity in need of a teacher. He, he says, don't judge, don't condemn, or you'll be judged and condemned. 
He, he wants you to understand that the reality is we, we're a lot like our brother that we're judging or condemning. He gets to that with the, the speck and the plank. You got this big plank in your own eye, right? Years ago, I had a, a big piece of wood up here, and I illustrated this by, okay, who wants me to, I had somebody come hold it right in front of like it was sticking out of my eye, and who wants me to take the speck out of their eye because I'm going to beat them to death with the plank in my own eye trying to get to their, right? Just the people must have laughed when he said that. But what he's saying is we've, there is this common nature of humanity. We're all broken, and we're all in need of a teacher. We're all in need of, of someone that can show us our own sin. No student is greater than his teacher, but a student, when he's fully trained, will be like his teacher. He's pointing to this, this need for an inner transformation. These aren't outward fixes. You don't just try to be more loving. You have to become a more loving person. The problems that we see in the world today come out of the people that we are, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good bring good out of their hearts that's stored up in their hearts into the world. The evil bring evil. And, and it, you can't change things on the outside only. You have to have this inner transformation. You need to become a different tree, he says, if you're going to bear different fruit. It's not as much about trying to be more like Jesus as it is about being changed. And that's why he wraps up the sermon, I think, with talking about the stability that comes through surrender and obedience. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. Like we, you probably sang that in kids' clubs growing up or in Sunday school, we've heard that song. And, and he starts that whole section by saying, why do you call me Lord? and not actually do what I say? Well, that's a pointed question. Why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? The point is that, that not only do we need to come to Jesus, but there needs to be this surrender and this obedience of putting his words into practice. That's what it means to build a solid and a stable life, to let the values of the kingdom be cultivated in us. To be taught obedience, to surrender to that teaching. That's what it looks like to live in this new kingdom of God that he's setting up here, that Luke's painting the picture of this new Israel, this new kingdom. To follow the 12 as they follow Jesus, and it's important to us because it, it calls attention to us today and our heritage, our calling, and our future. All of this is relevant to where we are today. I think it's, it's because it's a kingdom manifesto, it's insanely relevant to where we are today. The past leading up to this moment is our heritage. We have all of this that led up to this moment when Jesus establishes this new kingdom with this new 12 tribes and this new teaching. It's, it's our heritage. It's what's built to get us to where we are. And living as the subjects of the new kingdom, that's our calling. That's what we're supposed to do. And the coming in fullness of that kingdom where we're fully transformed is the hope we have for the future, the hope that gives fuel to our lives. I love that passage in Hebrews 11, the faith chapter, verses 14 to 16. People who say such things show they're looking for a country. They are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would, not, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they're longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared a city for them. This kingdom that, that God has been building, that he calls us to, is also our hope for the future, that one day the world will function this way under the leadership of Jesus. And, and to realize that begins to shape our identity. 
have to realize that once we come to the point of following Jesus, we're citizens of a deeper kingdom. It's not a new idea. If you've been around the church for a while, we are citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, we, we know this idea. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. But knowing it here and letting that permeate to a place where it shapes our identity are two different things. Citizens of the kingdom of God means that our allegiance lies there. I, I think sometimes we think we get this, but we kind of see it more as being a fan. Like, okay, I'm going to pick a hockey team, Vancouver Canucks, right? If you're a Canucks fan, right? Yeah, here's some cheering with that, right? We like the Canucks. We've got the T-shirt. Uh, if, if we're multimillionaires, we actually go watch a game. If we're just normal people, we watch it on TV, but we cheer for the team, and we're really excited about that. And, and, you know, we may even tell me, I'm a Canucks fan. Way to go, Canucks. We wear it on our hat. We wear it on our shirt. But it, it's, it's a portion of our lives. And, and citizenship is deeper than that. It's the essence of who we actually are. In 1990, I lived in Mexico for just over a year. And, and I grew up in the American South, which really shaped me. And I didn't realize how much it shaped me until I went to Mexico, and they were doing all these stupid things down there. I'm, I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek. It was a cultural difference, and, and I, I couldn't understand why they did things the way they did, because I thought radically differently. I had different ideas. I didn't know I had them. I just had them, and I had them because I grew up as a citizen of the United States living in the South. Same thing when I moved to Canada. Man, you guys were really weird at first. I, especially when I had to buy a house instead of a house. Um, but it, but it, it's taken years for me, and, and I, appreciate, I, I grew to appreciate the way things are done in Mexico. I, I have definitely grown to appreciate the way things are in Canada. But the reality is I was a citizen of the United States, and that had impacted me at a very deep, profound level, my thinking, my habits, my understanding. That, that's when we're a citizen of heaven, it's deeper. Some, sometimes the things I learned as a citizen of the United States were good. Sometimes they weren't great. But they were embedded in me. They were a part of who I was. I wasn't a fan of the United States. I was an American. And it shaped me. And being a citizen of the kingdom of God means that certain things are embedded in us. We grow to adopt these values, these ways of thinking. And often they conflict with the values, they conflict with the values of the world. I came across a quote the other day which I really liked by a guy named Stephen Matson. Sometimes being a good Christian meant being a bad Roman. So before you accuse people of being unpatriotic, ask yourself which empire they're actually serving. Ooh. You know, very often our values as Christians come into conflict with the values of the world. And, 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 and the point is, it is a radically different way of looking at life, valuing these things. As we live as citizens of the kingdom, we see things are different because of the upside-down nature 
of the kingdom. That's some Mennonites, I think, coined that term. I don't, I remember Cray Bill, I think, was a guy who wrote a book called The Upside Down Kingdom. I know, maybe not him. I can't remember the guy's name, but I love that term because it's exactly what Jesus did in those Beatitudes. Blessed are you and woe to you. It flipped everything on its head. Winning gets redefined. And the things that are important are seen in a totally different way. Remember Jesus when he's standing before Pilate? In John 18.36, he tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And he's not talking location there, I don't think so much, as he's talking about, because he said all the way through, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here. What he's saying is method. My kingdom doesn't act like this world, because if it were like this world, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but my kingdom is from another place. It works totally differently, Pilate. See, it's upside down. If, if my disciples were like the kingdom of the world, they would fight, but they're not. It's a totally different thing. As citizens of the kingdom, we operate by a different set of values. We've talked about some of those. This love for enemies, generosity, mercy. What is valuable in our life moves from possessions to people. People become valuable. We use our time differently. We have different goals for our lives as we adopt these kingdom values. We think differently. We view the world differently. We, we understand our purpose and our meaning differently as we come to adopt these kingdom values. John 15, Jesus says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, these different values... One of the things about living out these values of the kingdom, and, and we don't really realize this until we look back on it, but as you live out the values of the kingdom, what it does is draw a contrast for the world to see between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Think, for example, of the, the civil rights movement in the United States, right? As they practice this nonviolence, as they refuse to strike back. What, what happened was the world began to see the evil that was being perpetrated in, in, in that civil rights situation because the kingdom values of God were being demonstrated and the contrast made the evil look evil. Same thing with apartheid in, in South Africa. The actions of Desmond Tutu of Nelson Mandela acted in a way more aligned with kingdom values which show, began to show the world the evil that was going on there. I, I met a guy on my first sabbatical that I really appreciate, Will Willimon. He's a Methodist. Guy, and, and there's a quote I've got, Reed's going to put up by him, and I just love this quote. To be a Christian means gradually, Sunday after Sunday, to be subsumed into another story, a different account of where we've come from and where we're going, a story that's called gospel. You are properly called a Christian when it's obvious that the story told in Scripture is your story above all the other stories in the, that the world tries to impose on you, and that the God who, has render, who is rendered in Scripture is the God who has got you. Right? That, that Christianity, this kingdom of God thing, is not a statement of beliefs. It's an actual way of life where the, the Christ changes us to be the kind of tree that bears the fruit of the kingdom. How do we get there? Well, it starts with, with a practice of humility flowing from a transformed life. That's what he's talking about. And as he talks about, don't judge, don't condemn. 
Look at your, the plank in your own eye. Humility admits that our tendencies go the other way, that we need a teacher, we need a leader, we need somebody to, to help us live out what he's called us to, to admit that we're wired for our own purposes. I want me to be elevated. I want, I want to be the woe things. I want to be rich and well-fed. And I want people to speak well of me. I want to laugh. I want those things. That's what I want. I want to de design my life to get that. And to realize that humbly, I need to be transformed. James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Admit the plank in your own eye. Admit that the way we want to do things doesn't fit the kingdom. It's, it's, it starts with that point of humility. The fruit of humility only grows on the humility tree. <laughs> and, and what we need is Christ to change us to be a humility tree and a love tree, a grace tree, a mercy tree. And to do that means we have to see surrender as the continual first step. Now, I, I, I know you English people are... How can you have a continual first step? It's a first step, and then there's a second step. But I really think surrender is the continual first step. Surrendering my will to God's will. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? See, the key to transformation is this continual surrender to the leadership of God. As I coach basketball every week, we have a thought of the week that we reiterate in practice, and I pick it. Uh, last week's thought was this. We do not think ourselves into new ways of living, but we live ourselves into new ways of thinking. And you may be like, what? But my point with the basketball team was, you know, you can think, I want to be a better player. I want to hustle. I want to I, I, I develop my skills. You can think all those things, but thinking them does not get you there. But if you actually go out there and work harder every day, if you hustle, it, it's going to shape the way you think. The, the living out and, uh, begins to shape the way we think. And I think the same thing is true of the gospel. As we begin to surrender and live in love, grace, mercy, generosity, even when it doesn't feel right, all of a sudden we begin to see the beauty of those things and the value of those things. And God begins to transform us as we surrender. To start with surrendering to these values of the kingdom and to the leadership of Jesus. He says in, in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. To, to in the moment, choose to love our enemies. To surrender to his leadership. To be generous when the world would do otherwise. To practice showing mercy even when we don't feel like it. To surrender as a continual first step toward transformation and humility and the embedding of the values of the kingdom of God until we're transformed to, to be those citizens where they become actually the things that we just do naturally because of the Spirit living in us. That's what it means to be a part of the new Israel. That's what it means to fulfill the calling that Jesus has given us, to surrender to his leadership. And as we do that, it says as we look at him, in, in 2 Corinthians, as we, we with unveiled faces reflect his glory, we are being transformed into that same glory with ever-increasing glory. That's what it says. As we look at him, we're made like him. As we surrender, as we listen, as we adopt his values, as we live those out day by day, we're transformed into a tree that bears that fruit 
And, and then the world will see him for who he truly is. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, this, this kingdom that you have established. The fact that, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are the Lord. That the Spirit has come to live in us to transform us. And I ask God that you would help us as your scripture says, to not be conformed to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that you would, would meet us here in our desire to follow you and give us the courage and the strength to live out the values of the kingdom, to bear the fruit that only comes from you. Now, we, we want the people in hope to see the beauty of who you are and the beauty of the way you will bring the, the new creation into being. These values that we, we know are true but are very difficult sometimes to live out, especially as we try to protect ourselves. Give us the courage to, to let you protect us, to let you hold us, to let you cover us so that we can surrender and, and love our enemies and do good to those who hate us and be generous to those who take advantage of us. Because you, Father, you are kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Help us to be merciful even as you are merciful. In Jesus' name we pray. That's a great song to end with because you know what? A sermon like that, <laughs> you may feel overwhelmed with the way we live. Let me just give you this little piece of advice. You've got the rest of your life to walk with Jesus. You do not have to be perfectly sanctified tomorrow. But what, you, what I would recommend you do, take that passage, that Sermon on the Mount, those values, read them over this week. Just read them every day and say to God, Spirit, if there's something in there that you're calling me to, just make me aware of that. Find that one thing, whatever it may be. And then just say, okay, what do I need to do? How do I need to surrender in that one spot? Is it loving? Is it being merciful? Is it being gracious? Is it taking the plank out? What is it that God's saying to you that one thing this week and then surrender your will to that. Okay, I'll do that, God. You do that one week and do it the next week and the next week. God begins to transform. But don't let the vast darkness of our own selves overwhelm us. God, like, God loves us. There's no guilt in life. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But he doesn't want to change us to, to keep us from being condemned. He wants to change us because he's taking us to life. It's better to live that way. So take, just prayerfully look this week for one thing. Okay, God, meditate on that. What do you want me to do? Surrender that one thing and then do it week after week after week and you'll be amazed what God will do in your life. That's my prayer. Amen.